Hey, if you have your Bibles, uh, oh, and by the way, I'd like to welcome back our Spectrum team. I forgot to say that last hour. I said it at 7.45. You get old, you forget stuff. You begin to repeat yourself and you forget. I want to welcome back our youth Spectrum team from Mexico. Had a great week down there. If you've been following them online, you know what's been happening. And uh, we're excited to hear more from the kids and what happened with them. So we'll be filling you in more on that later. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to me if you would to the books of 1 Samuel, chapter 16 and 17. We're continuing on in our series of messages called Regalia. Regalia is a word that means all things pertaining to the king and the kingdom, the rise of the kingdom. And we've been studying how here in Samuel, God gave rise to Saul, the people's choice. But Saul didn't work out so well. So now we're going to see how things shift over to David, God's choice. And through David will come the line of kings that will lead to the ultimate king, Jesus, the Messiah. Here's how it's recorded in Samuel. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 15, verse 34. After Samuel just tells Saul that his kingdom is being rejected because he's rejected God, it says, Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. As you read on in the account, it says that the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. God is sovereign. He uses angelic hosts. He can use demonic spirits to accomplish his purpose. And through the tormenting of Saul, there was a need for Saul to be comforted. 
And God was going to use that to bring David and Saul together. Because his attendants said, when Saul is tormented, we need someone who can sing and play instruments well. And so they went and got David. And it tells us in chapter 16, verse 23, when the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Epis Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He's nine and a half feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, about 125 pounds. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and, on a, bron- and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, 15 pounds just for his spear tip. His shield bearer went ahead of him. For 40 days, Goliath came out to defy the armies of Israel. He insulted the God of Israel. And he kept saying, send out a man to fight me. If he wins, we'll be your slaves. If I win, you'll be our slaves. And he kept cursing the God of Israel and their army by his false gods. Back home in Bethlehem, Jesse has three sons in the war and he hasn't heard anything. And he wants to get a report, so he decides, I'm going to send David. So he calls David in, he gives him all the supplies to drop off for the commander and to help with his brothers. And while David is there, he hears Goliath's taunt. And David says to the men standing near him, verse 26, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Well, David's older brothers weren't too happy with him being there saying that stuff, basically telling him, you little runt, what are you doing out here? You just came out to be a spy. You came out to watch the battle. This is not a game. What are you doing? Your words aren't helping. Why don't you just go back home? And basically, David tells him, what, can I even speak? And he begins to talk to some of the other guys around there saying the same thing. And he gets overheard what he's saying. And the report gets back to Saul. There's a kid out here saying he'll take on Goliath. So Saul calls him in, verse 32. David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul basically says, well, I don't have any better options, so go for it. David can't wear the armor that's given him. He takes a slingshot and a rock, and you know the rest of the story. David, with a sling and a stone and the power of God, 
takes on Israel's enemy. And he wins. And David becomes the forerunner to the very thing that Jesus would do to save you and me. This is the story of how God chooses the king. Father, as we open this word today, I pray that you'll speak to us. There is much to be learned. And as we come to this table, I pray you'll help us to remember the very one to whom David pointed, the ultimate king of God's choosing. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen. You know, as we get older and things change, our perspectives change and our choices change. For example, when I was 17, getting my first car, I wanted something fast and cool. Now, I went out and bought a 63 Ford two-door coupe, 260 V8, three on the tree. Thing was a screamer, man. When I sold that, a guy took it and used it for drag racing. I wish I had that car back. I don't know what I'd do with it, but I wish I had it back. About 10 years later, I was married. Short time later, children were on the way. I didn't want something fast and cool. I needed something spacious. Cribs, diaper bags, extra clothes, three, 400 diapers every time you go to the store. So I went out and bought a station wagon. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, that was before the minivan. That's how old I am. So if you don't know what a station wagon is, just Google it. You'll see it. You'll wonder, why would anybody buy one of those? But anyway, we wanted more space. See, when it comes to choice choices, parents and grandparents choose differently than a 17-year-old boy getting his first car. And when it comes to choosing a king, God chooses differently than the people choose. In fact, he chooses from a whole different perspective with a whole different set of criteria. You see, the people wanted someone who looked like a king. Somebody who was tall, handsome, muscular, head and shoulders above everybody else. Someone they could look to to be the leader of their army and to fight their battles. So God gave them Saul. That didn't work out so good. So now it would be God's choice for king. And God chooses according to a whole different set of criteria and according to the fulfillment of his eternal plan. And the criteria he used to choose David says a lot about what he wants to find in you and me, the people today that are still proclaiming his glory and making him known. God's choice would be a man through whom would come a long line of kings leading to the king of kings, God's son, the Messiah, Jesus, the very one we are remembering today in communion. Because Samuel reminds us God chooses the king through whom God, through whom would come God, our Savior, Jesus. What was the basis of his choice? God chose a king who was a man after his own heart. God chose a king who was a man of unshakable trust. This is the way God put it in chapter 16, verse 7. When Eliab came before him, he chose a man after his own heart. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When we judge by outward appearance, we may miss the most important thing that lies within. I don't know how many of you recognize the name Dick Rowe. He was at one time the greatest music promoter, agent. 
He signed bands like the Rolling Stones and a whole bunch of others who were part of the British invasion and so many others who were top 40 during that time. But what Dick Rowe would not want you to remember is the decision he made when a young quartet came to see him to sing, playing their guitars. He listened to them. They were looking for a recording contract. But he listened to them and was, he said, totally unimpressed. And besides that, he's reported to have said, bands like this have no future. These guys like this are a dime a dozen. The, the things like this with the guitar, it has no future. And so he rejected them. Within a year, that group of boys that he rejected had a number one hit. It was called, I Want to Hold Your Hand. The band was the Beatles, and the rest was history. You see, Dick Rowe looked at a group of mophead musicians and didn't see what he was looking for, and so he rejected them based on their appearance, based on what he saw. But what he couldn't see was the incredible talent and potential that lay within. You see, appearances can be misleading. So God makes a choice based on something only he can see. God would make his choice on what he could see in the heart. That's why when Eliab, the firstborn of Jesse, came up and Samuel thought, man, this has surely got to be the guy. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesse is sent by God, to, or excuse me, Samuel is sent by God to Bethlehem to meet a man named Jesse, a very strategic town and a very strategic man. For a thousand years later, one of Jesse's other descendants will come back to Bethlehem with a very pregnant wife to give birth to the greatest one who's ever walked planet Earth. God is in the details. And Samuel arrives and announces he's there for the sacrifice. He consecrates Jesse's family and has him come up for the feast. Samuel spots the oldest boy, Eliab, and thinks, man, this has got to be the guy. And God says, not so fast. It's not him. We made this mistake before. Then Aminadab comes through. Nope, not him. Then Shammah comes through. Nope, not him. And so it goes through all seven boys. Verse 11, chapter 16. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. God said, I'm going to choose based on what I see in the heart. The word heart that Samuel used was a Hebrew word that can mean the physical pump. But it most often refers to describe the totality of a person's inner nature. His mind, his will, his emotion, his character. What a person is at their core, what makes them them. This is what God looks for. Remember what Samuel said to Saul when he dismissed him? Saul was rejected because he had a heart problem. 1 Samuel 13, 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. 
but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. Saul, you are not a man after God's own heart. In fact, you are after your own agenda. So God's rejected you. Now he's going after a man after his own heart, a man whose heart is given to knowing, serving, and obeying God, who is committed to his word, a man whose passion is to have a heart like God's heart. Paul told the Ephesians at the synagogue in Pisidia, or excuse me, he told the, the believers or the Jews gathered at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13 that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the man after God's own heart. He would be the sinless one. And Paul quoted and said what God had said to Samuel. David is a man after my own heart. He will do all that I want him to do. David was a man after God's own heart, but he, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't sinless. David had all the human frailties that we all share. And his sins became very obvious and very grievous. But unlike Saul, when David was confronted with his sin, he didn't excuse it or justify it or blame it or dodge it or cover it over with a spiritual veneer. You remember when Saul did not obey the Lord and he did not kill all of the animals that he was told to kill him when he came against King Agag. He didn't even kill the king as he was supposed to do. So when Samuel shows up, Saul says, I've obeyed the Lord. Samuel says, well, what's all this bleeding of sheep and lowing of cattle that I hear? Well, I did obey the Lord. I just saved out all of this to sacrifice to the Lord. You see what Saul was doing? He's trying to cover over his sin with a spiritual veneer. It's like people today who know they're living in sin. But they say, well, but I still go to church. I read my Bible. I'm a good person. I teach a Sunday school class. They're trying to cover over their sin with a veneer of spirituality. God sees right through it. But when God came to David to confront him with his sin through the prophet Nathan, do you remember David's response? No excuse, no justification. I have sinned against the Lord, he said. Full confession. And David cried out to God in one of the most gut-wrenching confessions ever witnessed in Psalm 51 after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged for the murder of her husband and was confronted by the prophet Nathan. David said in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And unlike Saul, he didn't try to plaster a spiritual veneer over his sin. For he went on to say in verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. 
One of the evidences of having a heart after God is whether or not we see sin the way God sees sin. Whether it breaks our heart the way it breaks God's heart. The Bible says that sin is lawlessness, it is rebellion, it is wickedness, it is evil. To have a heart after God means we come to hate sin for what it is and what it does. It destroys everything it touches. It separates people from God. It was sin that put Jesus on the cross. People, it's not a matter that we never sin. We do. Just like David. But having a heart after God means we hate sin the way God hates it. And we confess it. And we turn away from it. We don't tolerate it. We don't live in it. We don't choose it. To have a heart after God means the biggest reason we hate sin is not for what it does to us, but for what it does to God. I have hurt God enough in my life. I put his son on a cross. I don't want to hurt God anymore. I love him. So when I sin, I get before him and confess it. I ask him to forgive me. And I tell him I'm sorry. I mean it. And I ask him to help me. That I will see sin for what it is and I will never choose that course. Jesus is the ultimate man after God's own heart. He is the king after God's own heart. He's God in human flesh. The sinless one who had no sin at all who gave his life to save David and all of us from our sin. You see, this is why we're remembering Jesus at this table today and why the apostle who called himself the chief of sinners, the apostle Paul told the Corinthian church, there is to be a time of self-examination when you come to this table. Because no matter how we appear on the outside, the Lord sees the heart. He knows those who are his, who really believe, who really love him, and those who are just going through the motions. And we dare not come to this table with spiritual veneer, living in a life of sin, and then telling God that we're ready to have fellowship with him. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, I received from the Lord, Paul said, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. David said, I've sinned against the Lord. Broke his heart. Because he had a heart after God. He prayed a prayer in Psalm 51 that could be a model for us. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. People, this is the prayer of the man that is the heart the king would choose. His line would lead to Jesus, the one with the ultimate heart for God. And the very heart of Jesus that he wants to see living out in you and me. And not just a man after his own heart, but God chose a king who was a man of unshakable faith. David went out to the battle lines and heard Goliath. He's overheard in his willingness to go out and fight this giant, and it gets back to Saul. And Saul calls him in in chapter 17, and David says to him in verse 32, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Did you notice the contrast between Saul and David? Same giant, same problem, same enemy, same army, same circumstance, same everything. And Saul says what? You can't fight this guy. He's too big. You're too small. He's covered with this armor. You have none. He is a skilled warrior from his youth. You're just a boy. And David said what? I tend to my father's sheep. When a bear grabbed a lamb, I went after him. And when a lion grabbed him, I went after them. And I rescued him. When they turned on me, I killed them. Grabbed them by the hair and killed them. The Lord did that. And this guy will be like one of them. Do you see the difference? All Saul could see was the size of the giant and the weakness of David. All Saul could see was the size of his problem and certain defeat. All David could see was God and certain victory. 
See, it didn't matter to David if it was a bear, a lion, a Philistine giant. They were all the same to him when God is with you. Because David knew he didn't kill the bear, he didn't kill the lion, and he wouldn't kill the giant. God would do it, just as he'd done before. Goliath and the Philistine saw the God of Israel as just another deity. In fact, they believed that their Philistine gods were stronger than the God of Israel. And they believed that Goliath would prove that by defeating anyone that the armies of Israel sent out to defend their God. Goliath would kill him and prove that their gods were greater than Israel's God. But David knew that his God is God. And that Goliath and the rest of the world needed to know that. So David understood that the battle was never about David and Goliath. It even, wasn't even about Israel and the Philistines. This battle was about God versus his enemy. The false gods of the Philistines. And that God was to be vindicated so that the world would know. That Israel's God is God. So, in verse 41, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog? Do you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, <laughs> but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. And he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. People, who would have believed that one so low, so despised by his brothers and the enemy, so forsaken, so unwanted, so small, without weapons, could have ever taken on that giant and won. Well, God knew he would, and David believed him. Who would have ever thought that Jesus, so lowly and despised, so forsaken, so humble, without weapon, could take on our greatest enemy and triumph. God knew he would, 
And Jesus knew he would. People, when David threw that stone, God guided it to its target. And the enemy fell. His head was crushed. The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that from the seed of a woman would come forth one who would crush the head of Satan. Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the rock who crushed the head of the enemy and gained the victory. You see, this is why some of the apostles kept referring back to Saul and David and the men of great faith because they knew that these were here as stories pointing the way forward to the ultimate one who would be the victor over sin and death in the grave. Isaiah is the one who told us he will be despised and rejected and forsaken and alone, but he will gain the victory. But the question Isaiah asked in Isaiah 53 verse 1 is still relevant today. Who's believed the message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed the gospel? And who has seen the power of God in this? Paul told the Romans in Romans 10 verse 8, what does the word say? The word's near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. You see David in that? You see Jesus in that? You put your trust in him, you'll never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul says, but Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word about who? Christ. Jesus had unshakable faith and trust in his Father that brought him to the cross and gained the victory that saved and delivered us. That's why you remember in Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And he goes on in Hebrews 11 to describe all of those people who by faith lived and died, sought in two, killed with the sword, destroyed, destitute. They never lost their faith. It was unshakable. And he says in the end of chapter 11, we don't have time to tell you about Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel and David. He goes on to say in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. 
Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is the ultimate one of unshakable faith. He is the pioneer of our faith, the author, the prince, the captain. It's a word that indicates one who is the source of faith as well as the one who lives out what it looks like. Jesus led the way in showing us what a life of unshakable trust in God would look like and what it would accomplish. He is the perfecter of faith, the finisher of faith. He will bring all that faith is and all that faith does to perfect completion in himself. When David conquered Goliath, it was a picture of Christ conquering Satan, sin, death, and the grave. What David did to deliver Israel that day, Jesus has done to deliver all of us. And that's the one we're remembering today at communion. We're remembering the one who said, this bread is my body and this cup is my blood. It's given for you. And as often as you eat it, remember me. The one whose heart is after God. The one of unshakable faith. I am the king, Jesus said. I am the king of God's choosing. Father, thank you for this reminder today. And as we come to this table, let this not be mere ritual for us, but let us really remember our sinless Savior, the one who leads the way, the King of God's choosing. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen.